One highlight for me is definitely being able to go down to White Oak Pastures and uh, you know spend some time with Will Harris. And what they're doing down there is absolutely incredible. So I wanted to have Will back on the podcast to talk about his new book, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. All right. Uh, Will Harris, so, so glad to be visiting with you again, my friend. Um, we were able to go down in January and film. We know we know with seasons, uh, it's not exactly what it looks like uh, all the year with that lush green that you got going on now. But uh, we were able to see some amazing things that you and your family have done. Uh, and then with, uh, you know, sowing prosperity, that being what we what were focused on, you have taken the community building from business and agriculture to a whole nother level, but you've also done it uh, in that you have written a book or you have a book coming out, what is the bold return to giving a damn. So how how did you get here, my friend, how to writing a book from, from farming? <clears throat> well... You know, I'm, I'm certainly a farmer and not an author. You can believe that. You know, I, my, my degree is from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture, Animal Science, 1976. And I don't know that I ever read many books. We, uh, <laughs> if, if, if I had, I probably wouldn't have graduated with that proud C average that I had. But, but we, uh, we were con- uh, contacted by a, uh, uh, Penguin Random House and about writing a book and they contacted me and I told them we didn't want to do that <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> they uh, wound up contacting my daughter Jenny who you know and Jenny and them did a deal and they told me what they had done and I cooperated fully so which is what I do. <laughs> they- you do that well, you know. Jenny, Jenny uh, is a hard one to argue with. She's got it. She's got it going on. <laughs> she, she's a little, she is a little force of nature. She and her sister both. <laughs> there, I'm very proud of them and, and what they get done. <clears throat> but they uh, they sold the book rights to uh, Penguin Random House, and they uh, were everybody was aware that Will was not capable of writing a book. So they hired a very, uh, very, very sharp, personable young woman to write the book. Emily Graven is her name. She's from California. <clears throat> she is a great steward of the kind of farming you and I do, the regenerative, humane, local kind of a, kind of a deal. And she wrote the book. We spent countless hours together. She came here from California, spent a lot of time, and then we had an uh, 
every Friday afternoon appointment that was from one to three hours, and it was just exhausting. She <clears throat> she would ask question after question after question, and and I would tell her my story, and she weaved it together into this book that uh, and it's a uh, it's a done deal now, and I'm glad. And I give you my word, there won't be a volume two. I promise. <laughs> You're done, huh? <laughs> I'm done. So what uh, what do you think that she was able to capture? And you know, kind of go into that that title. Why why does it matter? Why should we care? Why should we give a damn about our food and and farming? Well, I think it's because we've not given a damn for so long. <clears throat> you know, we. You know, we, uh, life in the rural South, is what I can talk about, was all about the food, principally about the food, family connections for uh, a big part of, of what we did, uh, what life was about. Post-World War II, that all changed. You know, it, it, we could talk a long time about that, but food became very industrialized, commoditized, centralized. And it's been that way, and we didn't know any different. You know, even even my generation—I was born in 1954, as well post World War II. So it's been, for the most part, uh, uh, this industrial food model for all my life, and certainly all your life. <clears throat> and I think that pendulums swing, and this pendulum has swung so far that uh, a percentage of the people have interest in it. It's just, I, I don't think it's a huge percent. I, mean, I don't think it's anything like 50 or, or 40 or 30, but there are people who have focused on the fact that what we're eating is probably not nearly as natural a diet as what we historically have eaten and probably what we should be eating. And let, let me say I this. Think... <clears throat> this book is not, it's not all about food. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's not about the preparation of food. You know, I'm not a chef. You know, I'm not a nutritionist. I am a farmer. <clears throat> and this book is about that side of the business. I, I, I really make it my business to stay on my turf. What little I know about is what I talk about. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I think that you have a tremendous amount of wisdom across a, a much broader thing, but I definitely respect what, what you're saying there. The aspect of of centralization can can you help me understand that because I am in the middle of Arkansas and uh, there's a company that uh, is pretty well known by the name of Tyson that uh, has has a lot of exposure here and so with centralization what what do you mean by that and what does uh I even heard you say at one point centralization is what's killing rural America and uh Granted, I agree wholeheartedly, but can you, from your perspective, explain what that centralization means and how it's I killing can. rural America? I can't. <clears throat> you know, it has not been that long ago, World War II, what, like 70 years ago, that food was local food. There was not centralized food. You know, every little town, certainly every county seat, would have a little slaughterhouse, probably a little grain mill, probably, you know, a, a little... Uh, freezer locker, uh, a little canning plant, <clears throat> and local food was, uh, was was what we ate, or at least what my parents ate, their parents ate. 
<clears throat> post-World War II, food became centralized. And, you know, you can look it up on the Internet as well as I can, but there really aren't that many food companies. But they're just incredibly large international food companies. And they uh, feed us, and, and theoretically that's okay, but the centralization has taken the... Uh, uh, I guess it's taking the character out of the food. You know, it's it's uh, it's all about how cheaply the food can be made, and and we've we've taken incredible cost out of food production. You know, the the and, and to a great extent, those costs weren't lowered through economy; they were distributed off to. to you know, uh, to, to other areas. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, I'm here just north of the Gulf of Mexico, and there's a dead zone out there where we, there, you can't oyster anymore. It's a huge oyster production system, but all the uh, agricultural waste going down the Mississippi River, the Chattahoochee River, the other tributaries into the Gulf of Mexico have caused the oyster population to plummet. There's a big dead zone out there that they don't, there's no fish anymore. And I, we can go on and on about the ill effects of industrialization of our food production, but we don't hear about it much because it's controlled by a small number of food companies that have an incredibly loud voice and hire incredibly talented people to message to us. So we think it's all okay. And, you know, it's, it's probably not. It's probably really not all okay. Well, one thing about this centralization or globalization that's going on is you almost think that it creates more resiliency because it's more efficient or it's more this, more that. But what I've experienced, especially through COVID, is that it's an extremely fragile system. It's not building to resiliency. Uh, that the the old model is what built resiliency on that every town had a feed store and a, a butcher and and canning how, how do you see us going forward is it is it that model in bluffton is it is it just trying to create some enterprises that build out these smaller food systems well look at it and that's a, that's a great point it depends on what the consumer wants you know the consumer has wanted uh, cheap food for a long time, and they've gotten incredibly cheap food. We we eat incredibly cost-effectively today. You know, the the cost of the Western diet is a very small percentage of our income, and that's what we all thought we wanted, and that's what we got. And I guess it's fine. You, know, you hit the nail on the head when you brought resiliency into the equation. There's efficiency and resiliency, and we want both, but one offsets the other. And my system is not as efficient as a 100,000 head beef feedlot or a 1,000 sow firing operation or, or, or. <clears throat> but it is more resilient. You know, the, the, the best example is when the, the pandemic panic occurred and the, the big beef companies, big, big slaughter companies, closed down for a period of time and all the meat disappeared off the shelves of the grocery store. We never missed one day, not one hour of one day's production. <clears throat> we just kept going. 
you know, there, there was a pandemic here too. It, it was not, you know, we were not in an exempt area from the pandemic, but we just kept operating and it went fine. And that's resilience. I love how you have been able to take that resiliency to, to another level though, because through, through the store, you're able to serve food that you, you have processed right down the road. You've got it raised right there. So you've got this vertically integrated system too that supplies for the community. And that's, that's really what I wanted to emphasize when we came down and we filmed uh, the documentary Lessons from Bluffton. It's how you're able to build this resiliency by providing what the community want and need. Um, and so with, with your book, do you feel that uh, it, it's going to get out what's actually going on in Bluffton and, and strike a nerve? I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's the goal. Strike a nerve with the consumer to care and show an example of what's going on. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think that uh, lack of understanding is the reason that we have centralized our food production system. I think that the... Uh, ceaseless search for cheaper and cheaper food is what brought that on. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we started in the grass-fed beef business earlier than most. We're 25-plus years into it. And a number of other of my contemporaries that started have sold their businesses to big meat companies that, Continued and it was fine. It was fine. They made a business economic decision that I don't begrudge one business one bit. You know, there. You know, I'm uh, I'm 69 years old. They would be about my age, and if they didn't have another generation coming behind them, certainly they sold their their business. They they, they should have. <clears throat> I'm fortunate. I had uh, two daughters who came back. They're uh, they're in their 30s graduated from college, wanted to come back here, wanted to go to work in the business. And we had opportunities to sell to big multinational meat companies, more than one. And we chose not to do it. In the short run, maybe even long run, it might have been the economic best case for us to, to pursue. We chose not to do it because we, my daughters, wanted to continue to run it as a family business that they and their spouses came back now they have five children who are on the farm, and uh, and we'll we'll see whether that was a good decision or not. But it was a decision we made. We wanted to continue to run this business as a family farm, and we didn't have the uh, we did not have would never have and did not want to have the resources to blow it up into a national or multinational company. That's not who we are, it's not what we do. Uh, we sell 20 something million dollars worth of product a year and we manage the business. If we got much bigger than that, we'd have to hire, we couldn't handle it. We're not sophisticated enough business people to handle it. We'd have to hire a CEO to run our business for us. It's not what we wanted to do. And we believe that food our kind of food should be local. You know, it, it, we don't we don't want to have the grass-fed uh, beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry business for the United States of America. <clears throat> we want to have it here. 
we want this to be a highly replicatable system. And I would love to see a white oak pastures in every rural county in this country. Uh, I, and I used to think we would. I worry about it now. Things have gotten hard. Things are harder today than, than it was 25 years ago when I was starting. Uh, country of origin labeling is, would be the centerpiece for that. Well, how, how important is having your own processing facility um, to, to what you're talking about? Uh, I don't think that having your own processing facility is part of the equation, and I hope you don't have to do it. <clears throat> it's a whole separate business with a different set of skill sets that we had to develop because there was no processing here. And I either had to get in or not get in. So I got in and it was hard and it worked. We made it work. But uh, I think that you, you, it, is, it is absolutely essential that the farmer have access to slaughter and processing. I mean, don't, don't save the animal and finish them if you don't, if you don't know you've got access to slaughter and, and, and processing. What's the biggest challenge with, with processing right now, do you think? What just kind well, of, but, yeah, you know. I think there, there are two. One is just the cost of it. You know, a, a plant, depending on what it looks like, will cost you a, a, a big seven-digit number. You're talking about millions of dollars, not thousands of dollars. And that's certainly one. The other is the, the uh, USDA uh, uh, inspection uh, the the onerous things that have to be done, and I, I don't want to be too critical of that. You know, I want food to be safe. You know, I, and and we know that if you leave entrepreneurs to their own designs, they we will take shortcuts, and food will not always be safe. You know, that's just that's the way it works. So we've got to have regulation. And I think that all the regulations that are on the books are, are there for a reason. They, they, they go back to some incident that occurred that shouldn't have happened, and it's a, it's a regulatory step to prevent it from reoccurring. But uh, its uh, regulation is also more efficient in a big, high-volume plant. You know, we, we slaughter uh, 20, 25 head of cattle a day here when we're slaughtering cattle. Hogs would be 40, et cetera. Sheep would be about the same. Uh, a big industrial plant will slaughter thousands of head per hour. <clears throat> so the cost of inspection for the government is much lower at a big high volume plant. And they tend to write the rules and the rules uh, don't always uh, lend themselves to uh, working in a small plant like ours. It's, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a problem. It's okay. The, the cost of the plant, that's a problem. It's okay. The rigors of inspection, it's a problem, but it's okay. I, I do hope that farmers can find a way of, of uh, having their product processed without having to build their own plant. That's, you can do it. I'll show it to you, but it's, it's hard. Uh, another aspect that you have done with the uh, processing was taking what would be, you know, waste products and getting value from that through uh, increased fertility and the composting program y'all have got that's 
Fantastic. Talk to me a little bit about that composting. That way, you know, we saw it. We weren't able to, to dive into it through the documentary like, uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe we could have. But what you're able to do is actually combine a couple of quote-unquote waste products and add value. So can you go into your, your composting program? I will. I love talking about it. <clears throat> so a hero of mine is Dr. George Washington Carver. And he said a, a lot of wonderful things. But one of the statements he made that I like most is, in nature there is no waste. And that's just so profound. You know, in the modern food business, there is incredible waste. Incredible. It's just astounding. So we built this business on the... Uh, uh, premise of zero waste. Now, we're not at zero waste. We're not. In the processing plant, we are. And we take the, uh, uh, what would be considered packing plant waste, which would be eviscerate, gut fill, feathers, maybe some hooves, whatever. Whatever's not marketable. And we compost it. We have, uh, we generate about eight tons a day of packing plant waste. That's what the industry calls it. You know, to me, it's a nutrient stream, but they call it packing plant waste. And we compost it and uh, make wonderful, wonderful, unattractive compost. It doesn't look good, but if we if we do it right and we know how to do it right, uh, we it doesn't it doesn't smell bad, and it, it and we we use it all on our pastures. We've got. 3,200 acres of pasture here and a grazing relationship on another 2,000 and something acres. So we've got plenty of place to put it. I don't sell any of it. You've got to be licensed and and I'm, I don't want to go through that. I'm, I'm regulated enough. Thank you very much. But uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's wonderful plant food and I, I really enjoy having that. We... We also, uh, uh, along the lines of zero waste, uh, uh, I didn't do it. I did that. I did the, the compost. But the, uh, the other members of my family and employees here, uh, a pet food uh, business with bones and rawhide chews and other products that has just been a great way of monetizing something that otherwise would be wasted. Yeah, that whole process was fascinating. We were able to capture a, a lot of that. It's it just really, really neat, especially the bags and the, the leather products y'all do. Why is it so important, Will, to put these uh, this compost back on the land, back on the, the to build soil? Why, why does that matter? Well, you just can't keep hauling out of a warehouse and not put anything back in it. You wind up with an empty warehouse, and your land is the same way. You know, it was... So this, this, this gets maybe a little deeper than we need to get in this, but what we do here is very cyclical. We, we strongly believe in the cycles of nature. Everything's very cyclical. When my dad's generation industrialized food production and I fell right in behind him, we made it very linear. Something that was supposed to be cyclical became linear. So we, we hauled off the land... We take the cattle and send them to feedlots in Nebraska or Iowa or wherever. And then we brought uh, mined fertilizer, phosphorus, potassium, onto the land. 
in just a very linear kind of kind of a situation and did incredible harm in doing that. You know, the, the fertility of the soil is supposed to come from the microbes. Well, not only did we starve the microbes by not putting organic matter back out there, we poisoned the microbes with the fertilizer and the pesticides we used. So we had to buy mined fertilizer, very linear. And it, it was just, a, it was just, it took a beautiful, beautiful uh, system and turned it into something that was just very, very damaging from a dozen different perspectives. It's very damaging. So what we have done here, and, and I didn't realize this at first, but I've learned it over the last 25 years, is that the, the cycles of nature yield an abundance. And that abundance is what we live on. And for you farmers, what we, we live on is what we monetize to keep it, to keep it going. We... Uh, Got Go ahead. I've got Judith Schwartz coming on uh, the podcast coming up. She wrote Cows Save the Planet, and she's got another one that talks about the water cycle, and, and she spent a lot of time with Alan Savory. The one thing that sticks out to me was when we were riding around in the Jeep, you you pointed out the ants and at all these, these uh, red clay ant mounds that you had, and you said, you think that's good or bad? And so I just kind of you know paused and listened to you. You had a completely different perspective. I think everybody hates fire ants, uh, but you talked about the importance of them. Can you can you tell uh, us what what you told me that day on on the fire ants? Well, I do. I, th I think I think my fire ants are very beneficial to my farm. Uh, you know, they get on me and bite me just like they get on you and bite you, and I don't like them much when they do that. But but these fire ants. Uh, burrow into the soil and, and th th those burrows, those beds we call them, are eight feet deep. I, I literally took a piece of wire and fed it down there and it, it was eight feet deep. And that eight feet is, is they, have, they have burrowed in that soil so it is just super permeable to rainfall. So when we get a, and we, we are here in the coastal plains, 80 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, it's, it's not unusual to get a two, three, four, five, even six inch rain. And it's just a, 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 a corridor for that water to find its way into the soil. I, I have sat and watched it in the rain to see what it does, and it, it is beautiful. And I'll, I'll say too, fire ants are not native to the southeastern United States. They are a accidental unwanted import, but they provide a function here. I'm sure they, 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 you know, they probably do a little harm, but you know, there, there's a, an offsetting benefit. And I think that's the way nature works. That's what the cycles of nature are about. They're you know, birth, growth, death, decay, birth, growth, death, decay. That's cyclical. And what we humans do especially post-World War II, is want everything to be so linear. And it's just not meant to be that way. There are things that should be linear. I'm, I'm so glad I got this electronic device right here. It's, it's super linear. It's so helpful. You know, I don't know how I'd live without it. But I don't want to try to recreate my farm on a linear model just because I really like my device. But that's what we've done. 
Yeah, we've we've tried to take farming and agriculture and turn it into that industry that uh, that control every single aspect of it and not let nature do do its thing. You have spent time and even visited with Alan Savory. Uh, what 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 is what is he like, and what is what is Zimbabwe like? Uh, in in how how have you taken lessons that he's kind of very much known for and, and applied? Yeah, that's kind of that's, that's kind of interesting and humbling. But I'll tell you the story. So I I met Alan Savory. 15 years after I started my path to regenerative land management. And, uh, and you know, I, 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 you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gracious Southerner. I would not have said this out loud, but I thought I probably knew as much about regenerative land management as anybody on the planet. I wouldn't have said it, but I thought it. <laughs> and uh, I went to an uh, American Grassfield Association convention in Denver, Colorado, and uh, Alan was the keynote speaker I'd never heard of him. And when he started talking, I realized that, whoo, he knows way more than I do. And, uh, and I, uh, as a result of that, we became one of the first savory hubs that they had in this country. And at that time, uh, it was required that the, the hub leader, that'd be me, uh, go to Zimbabwe to his farm and spend uh, two weeks, I wound up spending nearly three weeks now, learning holistic management from Alan. And it was a humbling, great learning experience. And I came back and have emulated uh, to, the, to the extent I can the work he's done now. He, he's definitely fascinating, and I saw where he endorsed your book and, and wrote a thing that was so so kind, so so amazing. So that's big. That's big having having his support. Uh, another another one of your friends, uh, Gabe Brown, uh, visited with Gabe not too long ago, and he's talking about uh, his uh, Regenify that certification deal. And you have been pretty outspoken on the whole greenwashing topic. Why? Why is it important to have some consistency and some standards with with something like what Gabe's doing? Well, Gabe Brown's the best friend I got on the planet, and, and I have nothing but respect for him. <clears throat> He's as good as it gets, uh, and he uh, is uh, uh, one of the owners of the, the, the business that started that certification program. And it's I'm, I, and I, that, I'm sure that is as good a certification program as there is. And I support him. I support it. Uh, I am uh, a little bit lost. And, and, or, I don't think I'm lost. I'm on a, a path towards uh, my, my opinion on certification. Let's just talk about it. So I... I I'm not sure that we're doing the right thing having these big omnibus certification programs that cover great areas of land. You, 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 uh, and, and this is true of Alan Savory's uh, program. So many people have programs, and I think they all, all have merit. They're all good. Some better than others, but they're all good. Gabe's is fantastic. But... My experience has been that uh, ecosystem management is so localized that I don't know how you make it national or international. You know, the uh, 
I've, I've been farming this land, this 3,200 acres of land all my life. My father farmed it, my grandfather farmed it, and my great-grandfather farmed it. And I know what to do on this 3,200 acres of land. I don't have to go very far in any direction that the ecosystem changes. If you go up the mountain, it's different. If you go down to the coast, it's different. If you go down to the river, the watershed, things are different, and they, they should be managed differently. And the uh, programs that I have seen that uh, teach people how to manage ecosystems are a little bit disturbing to me. And... Uh, and I, and I don't I don't mean to, to diminish these systems or, or disparage against them in any way. I think they're fine. I'm just not sure that I embrace that whole thing. We have been asked to participate in some of these programs, and we have to some extent. But the further I get into them, the, the less good I feel about them. Uh, but, but simply because, you know, uh, a, an ecosystem is a certain climate, with certain microbes, certain plants, certain animals living in symbiotic relationships with each other. And the elevation doesn't have to change much, the moisture doesn't have to change much, the temperature doesn't have to change much, the soil type doesn't have to change much, that that whole balance is different. Not, not even better or worse, it's just different. And... Uh, and I just uh, struggle with systems that uh, uh, value one practice over another. I think it's just so situational. I think that's that's a lot of, of wisdom, and I appreciate that, that take on it. But I think that you also just kind of made the argument against centralization of agriculture in general. Um, I think it's the very much a parallel issue that you just brought up. Well, I think it is. I mean, I think that, that every ecosystem, you don't have to, you know, we talk about mountains, deserts, tundra, prairie. There are just so many sub-differentiations in ecosystems. And, you know, on my, on my farm, when I used to row crop farm, certain fields made cotton better than other fields that made peanuts, better than other fields that made corn. And I rotated them. I put all the crops on all the fields. All but I knew that field was going to be better because it's a cotton this year. It's a cotton field, and that's 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 an ecosystem. And it's that tiny. I mean, it may only be a half a mile, a quarter of a mile from the other one. You know, I, I can show you. Your know, soil types change dramatically. I've got what we call ball-bearing sand and what we call cowhide clay on this farm, which are just radically different. And they're, they're very near each other. You know, this, you know the, the, the Gulf Coast is an ancient seabed. You know, we find, you, if, you, if you drill a well, shark's teeth, you pull shark's teeth up, literally, really? literally. I'm sure I can show you some of them. Uh, so, you know, the, the you know, I, I, don't, I don't know enough geology, geology to know how it all occurs, but I do know there are radical differences and land needs to be managed differently. You know, before we humans so uh, overtly influenced that management, you know, nature did it. You know, this plant would grow here, that one would grow over there. 
you know, we have kind of uh, tried to make everything, you know, made the whole Midwest a cornfield and the, the whole Southeast a, a cotton peanut field and the whole San Joaquin Valley a vegetable. You know, that, that's not, that's, yep. that's against nature. It's beautiful, my friend. I think that that is just such a strong argument for the localization to have more of a a integrated system, a, a hub or a cluster, so to speak, and and just have them have them replicated. We've talked to um, Sally Fallon uh, Morell, who uh, Weston A. Price Foundation president founder. She's amazing. Love her. But I saw that she also endorsed your book, and that. That's a big deal because that is a, a community that is very health focused too. It is uh, it's multifaceted in that approach of health and agriculture, being conscious, being localized. And so, what uh, what does that mean to you to have Sally uh, rallying behind the the book? It meant a lot because uh, I know her well enough to know that if she hadn't wanted to do it. She would have said, "No, I'm not going to do that." But I mean, <laughs> yes, she, she well, she's a she's a gracious, sweet person. <clears throat> but if she didn't believe in it, she would just said no. So I'm very grateful. That's awesome. All right. Well, I got one more big one for you. Let's say that the governor of Georgia said, uh, appoints you to secretary of ag. Or, you know, if you don't want to go that far, if the secretary of ag came into the courthouse to visit with you, what is that first thing? What's that advice you would say, hey, we've got to change this or do this better? <clears throat> to to that person, to the to, to the person that was influential with uh, with with farm legislation, I would do all that I could do to demonstrate what big food, big ag, big tech lobbying has done to our farm program. You know, I think that our farm program, which is billions of dollars, is not just over-influenced, but almost exclusively influenced by the interest of big ag, big tech. <clears throat> and I don't think that we will ever have a meaningful farm program as long as that influence exists. And uh, I worry about where we will wind up as long as big, big tech, big ag has that influence. You know, I, I just, <clears throat> I don't see it ending very well. Yeah, well, I agree with you there. One thing that I have became very concerned over as I just really dive into it, and I know this topic got, got you in some hot water and then on the Joe Rogan podcast, but, Will, I, as I've dove into this, Bill Gates has 48,000 acres of Arkansas farmland on navigable waterways, and I just really am having a hard time seeing how, how this is a positive. Yeah, I've been criticized for, for the position I've taken, <clears throat> but I'm unapologetic. Uh, you know, when uh, I, I, you know, I believe in property rights. I believe that any person's got the right to acquire property, and 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 and, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't want, I don't want to get confused with that. But when I see a technocrat like Bill Gates acquiring all this farmland and operating it with that very technical mindset, that very linear technical mindset that they have, that this made them rich, then it is very, very disturbing to me because I have seen 
what that very linear technical mindset does to farms, farm situations, food production, rural communities, and it's bad. It's all bad, and it's always bad. Well, my friend, I, I just want you to know you are so appreciated. It has been a blessing to get to know you and have you in my life. Uh, Jody and Jenny are incredible. What you're doing in there at Bluffton, providing jobs, providing housing and services and a product. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, help promote the book and especially we get this documentary through uh, the film festival session and out there to the public. Uh, just just thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing, buddy. Well, you are very kind, very gracious, and I appreciate the, the attention you've given us, and thank you for your friendship. Will is an icon for, uh, you know, a, a good reason. Good reason with that. He's one of my favorite people. I cannot thank him enough. Check out White Oak Pastures. Check out anything that that family is doing because they are definitely uh, pioneers in, in the movement of making everything better. The documentary we filmed, Sewing Prosperity, Lessons from Bluffton, uh, will be out. So check that and uh, go over to sewingprosperity.com to be involved in the courses and the other parts of the community. Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.